all the technology that you have at your fingertips, if you can't make this work, it is not the industry. It is you. Because I had to literally get in my car, drive up to the courthouse in West Palm Beach, Florida. I had to hand write all the foreclosures. I say, you won't know what this is, Sean, but back in the day, we had these big giant map books. You'd have to go in the back of the book, find the actual address, go to the page in the map, and it may take eight pages to piece it together to get you where you needed to go. There was no GPS, there was no nothing. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Duan Ben Twyford. Duan is a real estate investor who has done thousands of deals. In this episode, Duan will tell us how investors used to invest back in the day and how technology can help you do it better today. We'll be going over how to start investing in real estate with little or no money and what you should learn when you're just getting started. If you're a new investor who wants to start flipping or wholesaling, then you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, Download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Duan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Okay, well, my name is Duan Benton Twyford, and I am known as America's most sought-after real estate investor. And I've been buying and selling foreclosures, commercial properties, rehab rentals, you name it, I've done it for 30 years. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and why are you America's number one most sought after real estate investor? Well, you know, I started, gosh, I mean, I just started so long ago. It's really hard to believe when I look back, but I ended up with an eight month old daughter being a single mom and just when I didn't have any path in my life and I found real estate investing and I thought, this seems like something fun. I could do it. I could work from home. It'd be great. And I started doing deals like 30 years ago. And just like a couple years in, I started sharing with other people the things I had already learned and started teaching. And then I don't even know. Everyone started asking me to write books. And then I, my most recent book I wrote was Steve Forbes. So I was like, all right. So I just throughout the years, I guess all the deals I've done over 2,000 deals personally. And I have over 500,000 students. And it's just climbed into this gigantic, huge thing. That's amazing. You want to talk about how you got started? Yes. So I was 20 in the 1980s. And I know that if you weren't around in the 80s, people don't understand it was like a super decadent disco, kind of a wild era, I think, for all of us that were in it. So I had literally no job skills, no experience, no nothing. I'd been fired. I even got fired from Denny's. Fired from Denny's. So I had basically by the time I turned 30 and I decided to settle down and have a kid, I had literally no job experience, no formal education, no nothing, 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 nothing. And so when uh, my daughter's father and I split up, 
I just thought, you know, I, I waited until I was 30 to have kids. I really want to raise my daughter myself. I don't want to raise her in the daycare system. So I just had one of those moments where you just have to decide what you're going to do. And as luck had it, I met some people that were real estate investors. And I thought, okay, I can fix houses. You know, I know how to paint. I know how to decorate. I can fix houses. I could do this. I can have my daughter with me. I wouldn't have to raise her in daycare. So I'm just going to take a crack at it and see what happens. So honestly, I was not even looking to be a real estate investor. I didn't know anything about real estate. I didn't know anything about being an investor. I didn't know anything about foreclosures. So I wasn't even like a lot of people that are listening are looking to become real estate investors. I was just looking for something I could do and have my daughter with me. And luckily it was real estate investing. And I really loved it. I made $22,000 on my very first deal. I mean, you gotta remember $22,000 in like 1990 was like a million dollars to me. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm rich. I'm gonna do this forever. And now my daughter's 31 and she invests with me and my family and we all do it together. So I kind of found it by accident. It was just like a really luckily, it was a like my come to Jesus moment. And I was just like, wow, okay, I'll, I'll do this. This sounds like fun. And I never even back then thought I'd still be doing it 30 years later. So back then there weren't like, meetup groups or online courses per se, how would you find these real estate investors to work with? You know, it's funny. When I teach, you know, I do a lot of, well, you know, I have a podcast. I do lots and lots of live workshops and seminars. And I always tell people, I said, listen, with all the technology that you have at your fingertips, if you can't make this work, it is not the industry. It is you. Because I had to literally get in my car drive up to the courthouse in West Palm Beach, Florida. I had to hand write all the foreclosures. I say, you won't know what this is, Sean, but back in the day, we had these big giant map books. You'd have to go in the back of the book, find the actual address, go to the page in the map, and it may take eight pages to piece it together to get you where you needed to go. There was no GPS, there was no nothing. And so that's how I would find deals. I would spend hours mapping out properties. So I basically memorized every single subdivision in entire South Florida. But after I was involved for about two years, we still had to use newspapers to find things. So in the newspaper, in the classified section, there was this little thing that said, hey, real estate investors, uh, there's going to be uh, a meeting. And it was over here in Boca Raton, Florida. So I went to that meeting and that was my first exposure to other real estate investors in South Florida. And I had already been working for a couple of years. I didn't know that there were all these people and there were about 80 people there. And there was me and one other girl. We were the only two women, all guys, totally the boys club. And then here I show up and I'm like, Hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm a real estate investor. So I don't think they took me super serious back then, but I was kicking butt on doing my deals and, Turned out I was doing more deals than almost everybody in the room. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted me to teach them what I was doing. That's great. What were you doing differently that everyone else wasn't doing? You know, honestly, I uh, went door knocking. I would map out all the homeowners in foreclosure and I would go knock on the door. And, you know, my script was really bad back then. I would just say something like, hey, I see you're in foreclosure and I'd like to buy your house. You know, how fast do you want to move out? And so I got a lot of doors slammed in my face. But I learned that by going and talking to people in person, they really appreciated like someone coming to their door and talking to them. 
And I didn't know any other way. Like there were no classes, there were no seminars, there were, there were no books, like there was nobody. There was nobody on TV yet, there was just nothing. So I didn't know any other way than to get the addresses and just go knock on the door. And then I found out everybody else was mailing letters and postcards and they weren't having as good of success because I went in person and I had a baby. So I'm knocking on the door, I got a baby hanging on my hip and everyone was like, oh, look at you, a single mom working with your daughter. Come in, we want to work with you. So I was wholesaling like 75 deals a year right out of the gate. Everybody else is doing like 10, 20, 30, but I'm door knocking all the time. And people are working with me all over the place. But I didn't even know. The funny thing is, Sean, I didn't even know that that was a lot of deals until I went to that meeting and met the other investors. And I talked to everyone in the room. I made my way around the entire room. And then I found out, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm a rock star. I'm doing more than everyone in the room. And I didn't even, I had no comparison. So I didn't even know how good I was doing till I found that first meeting. Wow. I mean, 75 deals is huge volume. So congrats on your hustle for being able to do it. Yeah, man, door knocking is pretty scary. You have to go there and talk to people and you have your baby with you. And weren't you scared during that time? No, it's really weird. I guess I probably should have been, but I was super naive and I didn't have any context of like, oh, somebody, you know, could hurt me or I just, I don't know. I always felt really safe and I always took Ayla with me everywhere. And that child has been with me everywhere. She's been in so many rehabs. She's been to so many closings. She, I drug her with me everywhere. And no, everyone was always really nice. Everybody was always excited that I was there because nobody else actually talked to them in person. And that definitely set me apart. Like it set me apart in a big way. And I ended up being one the top real estate investor in South Florida. And then like right away, as soon as these real estate groups started popping up, the RIA, Real Estate Investors Association, as these RIA started popping up just around Florida, I remember the guy from the Orlando group said, hey, I hear you're really doing some big numbers down there. I want you to come to Orlando. And I was like, okay. So I went speaking. And then people started calling me from around the country because all the RIA group leaders, I guess, were talking to each other around the country. And they say, hey, will you speak here? Will you speak there? And I was like, sure. So I never thought about becoming a trainer. I was just an investor. And then I started teaching. But then I really liked it a lot. And I really liked seeing other people closing deals. And I started, you know, helping other people. And I see people becoming millionaires. I was like, oh, my gosh, I have some crazy talent for teaching. I Who would have thought? That's probably like the best feeling in the world when you kind of see the results of whatever you created, right? Like you, I saw you when you were just starting out and now you've made millions on real estate investing. Yes. It, you know, it's funny because I just did a, a workshop recently and two of my students from 20 years ago, they found out I was in their state and they don't know each other. They independently drove there and both of them have like 75 rentals. Everything is paid for. They're multimillionaires. And they did all these videos and said, listen, I knew nothing before I met you. You totally changed my life. And so even like all these years later, it's just such a great feeling to know because I was like such a broke single mom, like so broke. And it's just a wonderful feeling to see the people and see them still 20 years later, still doing it and still living this really great, amazing life because they came across my path. Yeah. 
you said you had 500,000 students, so I'm sure you've you know, seen or talked to you know, a lot of them, right? And so from that group, though, you can kind of tell as well, like, who is going to be a rock star and who probably may not work out in the future. Have you seen any differences in terms of personalities of like what it takes to actually become successful in the business? Well, you know, that is really a good question because I don't know exactly because I don't ever want to, you know, sound rude to the people that I like. There's just some people you just meet them and you just know they're never going to do what it takes. Sometimes even want to teach them because I know that they won't do it. So I think the thing is, it's like with you, you can meet another person, you know, who's really a go getter and you know, who's really looking and really trying to find a path and a way to financial freedom. And then you can see the people that are like, I call them tire kickers. You know, you're young. You may not know the term tire kickers. That's people that go like to the, the car lot and they just like kick the tires, and but they never actually buy a car. So after a while, I think you can just kind of feel the people that really want it versus the people that are like, oh, yeah, I heard about being an investor. That sounds like fun. You know, I bought 18 programs from 18 people. Have you made any money? No. Have you read all your programs? No. So you can kind of tell the people that are just thinking about it versus the people are like, hey, listen. I want to change my family's financial history. I'm tired of my boss. I'm tired of my job. I went to college and got this amazing degree and I make no money in my degree. Or, you know, I've got this great degree and I'm waiting tables. And those are the people that will do the work that it takes to become successful. And not everybody even has to become a millionaire. And I think most people, you know, would be happy making three or $400,000 a year. I don't think that every single person is, needs, oh, I'm going to be a millionaire because, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to become a millionaire, but you start making, you know, three, $400,000 a year and you do it over time and you follow what I tell you and you buy a few rentals and you buy a few things. And next thing you know, you're like, wow, I'm worth like $5 million. How did that happen? Yeah. So basically someone has to have that fire in the stomach and the motivation to actually do what you tell them to do, because you can give someone advice, but if they're not receptive to it, then like you said, they're going to take 18 different programs and get nothing out of it because they're not even serious about it. Yeah. You know, I know, you know, people like that, that, oh yeah, they, you know, it's like people that go to the gym, oh, I'm going to lose all this weight. And then, you know, two weeks later, they're eating a bag of chips and they forgot about going to the gym. So it's the same kind of thing. You just, you know, I guess over time you just learn to interview people and ask the really good questions and, and find out, you know, what are they willing to not to even give up what are they willing to give up during the building process are they willing to work evenings are they willing to put some weekends in are they willing to you know drag their kids along with them when they're out running around looking at deals like you know what are they willing to do to make that happen because you don't just wake up one day and become a millionaire from real estate unless i don't know you win the lottery or something right yeah there's a lot of people who go to conferences or they go to meetup groups and they're like really excited for maybe a month or two, but then they see that they're not getting the results they wanted and then they just kind of drop off. So it's also being persistent in that pursuit. And you know, the part of it is that people need to face the reality that if you really want to make, let's just say they want to make $300,000 a year. Well, the average person in America makes like 50 something thousand. So if you want to make $300,000 a year, that doesn't mean you just work nine to five exactly. You never put in an evening. You never put in a weekend. You never get out of your box. You never get out of your comfort zone. 
unless you're willing to do those things, you're just going to keep making what you make. And so people come in, like you said, they're like, oh, this is so exciting. And then in two months, they fizzled off. It's like, where did you go? And it's because they recognize that it's work. Yeah, it's not so simple. But you're working for yourself. So like, I don't mind working hard because I'm working for myself, my kids. I have grandkids now. And I'm building a legacy for my family. And I'm living a super great life for myself. And I work for myself 100% all the time. So I don't mind putting in the extra work because I'd sure rather be doing what I'm doing than working for somebody else. Right. Yeah, I mean, on my podcast, I've interviewed dozens of people. And it seems like once you have a good system going, it kind of snowballs. Like if you're successful, you can continue being successful. But the people who haven't reached that threshold yet are struggling. Like it's really, really hard to kind of take off. What do you think are like the main challenges that people have before they can break through to that you know, success track? You know what? That is such a good question. And so many people ask that question. And you know what it really boils down to? It really boils down to setting, a, and I know it sounds so basic, it boils down to setting a schedule and people need to stick to the schedule. And I mean a schedule as simple as every morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., I'm going to return calls from people that called from my mailings and my signs. And then from this time to this time, I'm going to work on finding new leads. And from this time to this time, I'm going to go visit with homeowners who are talking about going to contract with me. And it's making a schedule, but it's sticking to it. So if it's, uh, say, from 9 to 10, you return calls and someone says, hey, I want to talk to you. Drop everything. Come over to my house right now. A new investor will drop everything and go to that house thinking there could be a, a deal there. And you can't do that because the second you get off your schedule, you fall behind on all the rest of it. And it snowballs into this thing where at the end of a week, you feel like you didn't get anything done. So people have to set an actual schedule and a realistic schedule and they have to stick to it. And the number one thing they have to do is they have to follow up. I tell, I tell homeowners all the time, investors, I, every workshop, I say, write this down first thing in the morning. So the number one reason your business will fail is lack of follow-up because what happens is as a brand new investor maybe i went knocking on doors and 10 people said they were interested and then they said call back in a week well i call them back and maybe it goes to voicemail and then my mind starts saying oh you're bothering them they didn't answer they don't want to talk to you and i talk myself out of following up with them so now i'm looking for new leads every single day instead of following up with all the leads that are right in front of me. So people build this cycle of like running on the hamster wheel, looking for leads all day. And if they would just follow up with the ones that they have and consistently follow up and consistently stay on their schedule, it would snowball into closings, 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 closings. But people get sidetracked too easy because they let their mind get away with them. I don't wanna bother people, they're in foreclosure. It's like, hello, they're in foreclosure, they need to be bothered. They said they want to work with you. And so people are afraid. They have fear. Fear is what stops everybody. And it's fear of the unknown. It's feeling like you're being too pushy. It's fear of all these things. I always tell people, you got to put yourself on the other side of the fence. The homeowner that's losing their house is losing their house because something happened to them. Like they lost a job. They lost a spouse. Somebody died. Someone got sick. Something happened. So their mind is in a million places. You 
have to be the one that stays up and follows up with them because they're not capable of doing that right now. And how frequent do you think you should follow up with a potential lead? Well, you know, I will follow up and, you know, the foreclosure process is different in every state, but if I meet a homeowner, maybe they're three months away from the foreclosure and then the foreclosure, by that I mean like the, the foreclosure sale where they actually lose their house and it, it goes to the bank. In some states that's called the sheriff sale, the trustee sale, it's different things in different states. But if I meet a homeowner, I will follow up with them all the way until the foreclosure sale. So if by that time, because sometimes when you meet them, like, you know, I may meet you today, you're in foreclosure and, and today you say, no, 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 it's not me. You got the wrong house because you're in denial. And then I might talk to you in two weeks and you're like, oh my gosh, I really am going to lose my house. I don't know what to do. And now you're fearful. And I talk to you a few weeks from now and you're like, oh, Dwan, thank God you called me back. I need help because now you're in acceptance. So one of the things I teach investors is the mindset of the homeowners and to recognize where they are mentally in the process so you can be the best help to them. So I will follow up until they say, I just, I'm going to let it go or I want to work with you. And a lot of people will be able to save their properties. You know, they'll do a loan modification or something like that and they'll be able to save their properties. So if I can ever offer any kind of advice to help them keep their property, I always offer that advice first. And here's what you can do. Here's how you save your house. If you cannot save your house, I'm your last resort. Because I want them to try to save their house if they can. But then, you know, there are cases where it's not possible and they're going to lose it. And if they're going to lose it, I'd rather them work with me because I can give them money to move with. I can keep them from getting a foreclosure on their credit report. And then I make really good money in the meantime. So I'm helping, creating win-wins, and making huge amounts of money. Are you still doing that to this day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oddly enough, because people are like, oh, you don't still do that. I'm like, you know, when you build like a a full, like we have like a full-blown giant business. But out of every business, everyone has the little pieces that they really like. You know, like I'm sure you do too. You you have your business and there's some things you delegate out because you're just like, eh, I don't really like that. So I'll delegate it. There's parts that you like. I actually really enjoy talking to homeowners because I was a broke single mom. I did lose my house in foreclosure. I went through a divorce. I had a baby. I didn't have a car. I was that person. And if anybody would have come to me and said, I can help you, I would have taken help from anyone. So I remember, even though it's been a really long time, I remember the pain of being that person and the embarrassment of losing my own house and having to tell my parents like, oh, we split up and my baby's eight months old. I remember that. So I really like to help homeowners and I actually really love teaching. So as much as I delegate out to other people, which would be all things, including paperwork, you know, all those things, everything. I I still like to talk to homeowners and I really love teaching and helping and training. So those are the two things that I keep my hands in because they make me happy and I feel good about what I do. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what you actually do outsource and what do you actually do? I mean, you mentioned that you talk to the home sellers yourself directly, but what other tasks do you delegate to other team members? Everything. It's funny because my husband and I, we've been married for 20 years. So he was investing. Also, we invested at the same time. And when we met, we were both about 10 years in. Now, Bill, he cannot delegate anything. He's like, you got to do it yourself. Things don't get done right. And I am the person that will delegate every last 
thing. So I have someone that does, goes and puts out my signs. I have someone that fields the phone calls. I have people that book me for speaking. I have people that do all the taxes, the paperwork, the closings, the title company. When we rehab houses, I'll go lay out the rehab, we'll design it. And then I'm like, I'll be back every week and see what you're doing. So I delegate a lot at this point. But you know, the thing is, and this is one of the things I train new investors is you can't delegate anything until you learn how to do it first. So if I want to have somebody go out and find leads for me, I need to learn how to find leads first so I can train them to do it the way I do it. Because if I don't know what they're doing, how do I know if they're even doing a good job? You know, and like when I started rehabbing, my first like five houses, I rehabbed them. And I mean, me personally fixed up all these houses. And in my very first house, I had carpet put in, I painted the house, I decorated a little bit. And I remember thinking like, gosh, this house, I'm looking around thinking, this house needs a lot of work. And I did not know how to do any of that. So I actually started going to the Home Depot and I took classes. So I would take a class on like how to lay tile and I'd go back and tile my kitchen floor. And then I would tile the bathroom floors and then I learned how to paint and I learned how to build cabinets. My daughter would be sleeping at night and I'd be building kitchen cabinets in the house. I learned how to make the screens. I learned how to pressure wash. I learned how to landscape. Like I, my first four or five rehabs, I did 90% of the work by myself. I learned how to wire houses. I can do electrical, I can do plumbing. And just like three years ago, we rehabbed this house up in the mountains in Colorado. And I, I told my husband, I said, you know, I haven't wired a house for 20 years. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wire this house. He's like, oh, I said, no, I, I think I am. I'm going to see if I can still remember it. So I literally wired this house. It took me days. I mean, days. And I, Halfway through, I was like, oh, my gosh, listen, have someone run the wires through the walls. Let me know when you get to the end. So, But I just wanted to see if I could still remember. And, of course, I had someone come behind me, you know, an electrical contractor and make sure everything was proper. But all those years later, it's like I still know how to wire the house. So that was kind of fun. That's awesome because I've done some flip projects before, and I always rely on my general contractor to do the work. But then, of course, because you have someone else doing it for you, like you said, you don't know if they're doing a good job. They're doing it really on budget and on time. Like, does it really take that much time to tile floors? Maybe, maybe not. The thing is about that, I always tell people, all my students, I'm like, listen, you don't have to do all of the things, but you should at least have a general knowledge of how long does it take to tile a floor? What supplies do you need? Because I have caught contractors buying tile for one of my jobs, and then there's so much left over they're taking it to another job. And so I know, hang on a minute. So I took the time to go and like Home Depot or Lowe's or any of those places that have those, you know, how-to classes on the weekends. It's not a bad idea to take a few of those classes and just learn so that if someone says, oh yeah, it's 750 bucks to put on a toilet, you know, that's not right. You know, you don't need 2000 feet of tile in a thousand foot house. Like where's the extra tile? Because not all contractors, I'm just saying, not all, but some will buy extra and take to other jobs. Or they'll buy extra at all their jobs. So when they rehab their own, they have all these supplies. I've caught people buying too many child, too many toilets, you know, double the cabins I needed. And, and I wouldn't have known any of that stuff if I didn't take the time to educate myself. That's true. Yeah. So if you learn it, then they can't BS you. Yes, exactly. And, you know, when I started again, you know, I'm young, I'm, you know, 
in my early 30s and I'm in South Florida. So I've got that big giant blonde perm hair and you know, all these contractors are like, just like a bimbo. They don't take me serious. And then I was like, oh, listen, I have been rehabbing by myself the last couple of years. I know what everything takes. I want to know exactly what you're ordering, what you're doing, and why do you need that much paint? I don't think so. And they learned pretty quick that like I would just rip them if I saw them ordering one extra thing that I didn't need. But I learned, you know. That's cool. Were you living in those houses while you were repairing them? Oh, yeah. In the beginning, I had to because when my husband and I split up, I literally, I mean, I'm not even joking. I tell people this all the time. I said, I had no car. He took the car and lost the house. I literally had like $75 in my purse. I'm sitting there thinking like, oh, my God, I've got this baby. I've got no car. I've got no formal education. I'm losing this house. I have no credit. I'm nothing. So, but I had a lot of credit cards. So the first like five houses I had, I couldn't pay rent and work on a house over there. So I moved in, rehab the houses. I'd sell it, move to the next one. So I did that until my daughter started kindergarten. So until she started kindergarten, at that point we were living in Boca Raton, Florida. And I had rehabbed a really beautiful house. I thought, you know what? I'm going to stay in this house for a while. So I moved in. And so what I would do is I would get the house ready and I would go over and uh, do the master bath first. And I'd move in and bring Ayla and me and we'd stay in the master bedroom with a bath. And the whole rest of the house would be a total construction zone. And so to keep her busy, I used to give her, she likes, she's super artistic. So I'd give her uh, crayons and uh, paint and she would paint on the walls and just keep herself busy like throughout the day, painting and drawing and you know, sidewalk chalking on the ground and just busy inside the houses. So then when we moved into the house we were going to keep, I said, OK, now listen, you know, mommy's going to keep this house and we're not going to draw and we're not going to paint on the walls. And I remember one day she was really quiet for a long time and I thought, I know what she's doing. She's in her room. She's drawing. She's painting. She'd gone around the house and like up three feet, she painted everything. So I was like, okay, we're not going to do that in the houses that we live in anymore. So I had to teach her to, to stop doing that. But when she was little, it kept her busy. That's great. I mean, at least you can paint over it. So it's not like that big of a deal. Yeah. So I could paint over everything, but oh my gosh. And you know, the thing is also, she just remembers always having fun and always being able to be super artsy and being with me and hanging out and she just we just had a great life together and how long did it take for you to fix up one house by yourself my very first house took me only about six months not really that long so I always tell people I went through a I went through like one of those really wicked divorces like the kind that you know leaves you scarred for a while and I always tell people I said listen if you want really great therapy and you're going through a nasty divorce rehab a house by yourself because you like banging down the cabinets and using a sledgehammer and you're chopping stuff up. And it was the best therapy. And I was just super angry. So I just ripped into that house. And when it was done, I was like, huh, this looks great. And I feel so much better. So by my second and third houses, I had my mom help a little bit. I had my sister help a little bit. And then I, I learned like I could hire an electrician. The first house didn't need like electrical plumbing. But when I got to houses that needed that kind of stuff, I'd actually go to Home Depot and find people. So I just started finding people to come and help with the things I didn't know how to do. But over the course of the first five years, I learned how to do. I think the only thing I've never not done is I've never tiled a roof. And mostly I'm afraid to fall off. 
and I'm not really comfortable. I'm not afraid of heights. I have a, a bad equilibrium because of some ear issues. So I'm uncomfortable walking around on a roof. So I think roofing a house is probably the only thing I've actually not done. Wow. So you're out there working with power tools and like saws and cutting things and Oh yeah. My daughter too. The house that we did up in the mountains, because uh, we, you know, we live half the year in Colorado and, and half the year in Florida. And so we did a couple rehabs up in the mountains. So that's my daughter's first time at like really working on a house. And she's over there and she's just sawing things up and chopping things up and she's doing knockdown on the walls and she's like, Oh my gosh, mom, this is so fun. I was like, Yeah, it was super fun in my thirties. But then you get like in your 40s and then your 50s, you know, like, oh, my back. And you're like, you know what? I don't need to prove anything. I don't need to do that anymore. But by the time I was in maybe three or four years in the business, at that time, I was uh, I started wholesaling houses. But I also had found a couple construction crews. So I had like two separate crews. And within the first five years, for sure, I would have at least four or five houses going on at one time. And I had a crew in every house. And I mean, I was militant. I'm there with my checklist, making sure everything is done. And I was like, listen, I know what it takes and I don't want to hear anything. I want to see that budget. I want to see everything. So I was just like up everybody's butt all of the time. They hated the days I came to the rehabs because I was like, hey, what is that right there? And I was all over everyone. So about the fifth year, I was like full on three, four houses at a time, crews, wholesaling and just mixing it up. But as it turned out, I really liked wholesaling the best, flipping houses, like you know, getting the homeowner and selling it to the rehabbers. And so as soon as I discovered how much money I could make just selling it to other people without doing the work, that's when I stopped rehabbing. And there's much less, I mean, there's almost no risk when you're wholesaling, so it's pretty great. No risk and no backbreaking anything. And you know, I rehabbed a lot of these houses in South Florida a lot of them don't even have air conditioning when you buy them. So it's hot, you know? Yep. I mean, I'm in the middle of painting my house. So I'm out there taping everything by myself. And, you know, it's a pain, but it's not as bad as, as paying someone to do it all for you. You know, weirdly enough, one of the things I really like to do is I like to paint. But I still like to roll the paint on. Like my husband uses paint sprayers. I like to roll the paint. I find it very um, kind of meditative. Just put some music on and just start rolling and painting and going around the house. I actually enjoy painting. Yeah. I mean, the painting part is going to be really easy, but it's the preparing part that takes a lot of time. It's a lot. And you got to trim it. You got to tape it. And, yep. you know, and, but you really got to do all the preparation properly or you'll get paint all over everything. Exactly. It's funny that you mentioned that construction work was very therapeutic for you because I saw a movie with Mark Wahlberg a couple months ago called Instant Family. And I mean, they're flippers. And then I guess they have some frustration and they go to their construction site and just bang out all the, you know, all the things in the house. It did. And, you know, I am the most mild mannered person. I really, truly am. But I think that whole time period when I first started, it was just so disruptive and everything was such a mess in my life. And I just had like so much pent up frustration and deep anger that I didn't really realize I had. And it was very therapeutic. And, and I would work really hard all day. And I'd look at the house and go, oh, I can, I can see the work of my hands. I can see what I did today. And the more I did it, it's like, it really like, it was therapy. It worked me through all my things. And I came out the other end, a happier, better person with way more money. And I had way more money than my ex. So that made me super happy. I was like, success is the best revenge. Exactly. Now, how were you able to afford that first property if, you know, you were in such financial straits. 
You know, it's so funny. I was just talking to some people about this the other day. My very first house, I did not know enough about what I was doing. It's amazing I did this deal. So the woman, Barbara, she was a few months behind on her mortgage. And I said, well, I couldn't afford to buy the house. I didn't have any credit to actually buy it. So we sat down and, and it's amazing that we did all this basically on a handshake. I said, well, listen, you move out of the house. I'll move in. I'll make the payments every month. So now she still owns this house. I'm living in the house. I said, I'll make the payments. I've got a lot of credit card. I had about $60,000 worth of credit card. I'll use my credit cards. I'll buy all the stuff and we'll fix it up. And then we sell it. We'll split it. So basically I did a, an owner partnering deal with no paperwork. So when I look back at that deal, I was like, oh my God, what was I doing? But the thing is, I didn't know. And she didn't know either. She'd lost her husband. She didn't want to be in the house anymore. And she couldn't make the payments. So we were just both in like just a real tragic situation. And I signed just, I had only a sales contract signed by her that she agreed to sell the house to me. And just by, you know, shaking hands and hugging it out, she moved out. I moved in. So I've just kept pulling money off my credit card and to make the mortgage payment every month. And I had a, a huge Home Depot. At that time, my Home Depot card was like $10,000, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot of credit 30 years ago. My Home Depot card always had the highest limit on it. And I don't even know why I even had a Home Depot card at that time, but I did. And so I borrowed a little bit of money from some family members just to help me with the basic electric phone, groceries, stuff like that. I did the whole thing on credit and when it was all said and done. She got a third. I got two thirds. And of course I got all the money back that I had put into everything. And then that money, I was able to do the next house. And the second house, I made $50,000 on that house, which floored me. I was like, Oh my gosh, I made $50,000. How is that even possible? And that house allowed me to do two houses. So I just, got extremely lucky on the first one that we were both honest, ethical, but we were just hurting women and we just like bonded together. So I tell people now, I'm like, listen, don't ever do a deal with a homeowner unless you have the deed, you have the warranty deed, you have the power of attorney. If you don't have all these paperwork, you cannot do that deal. And I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe how I did my first deal. But you know what? That one $22,000 check launched me into the second house and that house launched me into a career. That's amazing. So, and it really was. Even now I look back and I'm like, gosh, that's amazing that that happened. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, she could have died and I couldn't have closed on the house without her because she was on the deed to the property. I could have died. You know, she could have you know, someone could have told her like, oh, let her fix the house up and you just move back into it and keep it. Like a million things could have gone wrong. And it was, I always just say it was by the grace of God. Everything went good for me. Everything went good for her. She moved on. I moved on. And that second house just put me off the stratosphere. And I mean, $50,000 is a lot now, but imagine how much money that was 30 years ago. That was like, being like you know, $150,000. I was just like, oh my gosh, I have so much money. So, and I moved, I kept moving into these houses with Ayla. And then, like I said, when she started kindergarten, I'm like, okay, we're going to stay in Boca. And then I started doing houses, hiring people. And most of the people I hired, I met them all at Home Depot. You know, I didn't know until that real estate group opened 
in Boca Raton where I met other investors in a group, I only knew the people I met at Home Depot. I didn't even know there were other people doing what I was doing. That's so crazy. You did subject two on your first deal without really even knowing what you were doing. With no paperwork. Can you imagine? With no paperwork. Like nowadays, I would tell someone, if they don't sign everything, walk away. So basically, I did a subject two. I made those payments. And then we split the profit. And then we didn't have anything in writing about that. She could have not paid me. I could have not paid her. And I just remember when I went to the closing. And I had like a real estate agent friend. Like, oh, you need to find a title company. So I found a title company. And I remember going to the closing. And so Barbara's there. I'm there. This title come, this agent, she's looking through the paper. She's like, well, where's this document, that document? And we're just looking at each other. We're like, I don't know. And she goes, did you do all this with no paperwork? I said, well, I signed sales contract. And the title agent was horrified. She's like, oh, my God. So she's like, okay. this, this you know." Uh, so it took about a week or two to get the right documents put together. And at that point, I was like, Holy cow, I didn't even know about those other documents. What is all that stuff? So yeah, I basically did an owner partner subject to on a hug. That's awesome. Isn't that crazy though? Like who would do that? That's crazy. Oh my gosh. I'm glad it worked out for you. It was good. I think it was good that I was so naive because I just expect, you know, and I always still expect people just to do what they say they're gonna do. And she did too, and she was hurt and I was hurt. And it was just the right time for the two of us to work together. And she moved on and I launched a whole entire career off of doing pretty much everything wrong. So how did you find the seller and how did you even know to do the subject two rep? Or how did you know how to do the subject two? I didn't know about subject two. I found her, um, cause like I said, I, you know, when I was first separated, I was looking you know, for something I could do, where I could raise my daughter. And so I know this is too young for you, but back in the 80s and 90s, multi-level marketing was like the hottest thing. And so, and we had to find, you had to look for jobs and things in the classified section of an, an actual newspaper. And, and I would go to these different places and they meet at ballrooms. And it's like, oh, this one's Amway. This one's Herbalife. This is this and this. I thought, no. Yeah, I understand those are good things, but like that's not money I can get like right this very minute. So anyway, I met these other people that were real estate investors. So they were like, oh, yeah, we buy houses, we fix them up and then we sell them. And I just remember thinking I could do that. That sounds like fun. And I said, where do you find the people? And they said, well, we go to the courthouse and we get all the foreclosure leads and we go out and we knock on doors. And I was like, OK, I can do that, too. So. I literally went up to the West Palm Beach courthouse. I wrote down, uh, like on a piece of paper, just hand wrote all the foreclosures, mapped them out, went knocking on doors. And I had knocked on doors for about two weeks. And everyone was like, no, 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 no. And then this Barbara just looks at me and she starts crying. And she's like, I would love to work with you. And I thought, oh, yay, I got a lead. And over the course of three or four meetings at her house, we worked it out. We talked to what we we're going to do. I'm like, okay. Shook hands, gave a hug, and she moved out, and I moved in. Got it. So it was mostly by discovery and seeing, all right, how can you help her? Okay, if I, make, I can make your mortgage payments for you because I probably can't get a loan to buy this whole house. Oh, no, no. I had lost my house in foreclosure. There's no way I could have gotten a loan at that point. My husband and I split up. I lost my car and my house. And like I basically, I got the baby. So that was all that really mattered. And so I knew I couldn't get a loan. And she was only a few payments behind, but she couldn't catch up. 
her husband had passed and she couldn't mentally she wasn't ready and she wasn't working and you know it was just a big mess and it, i mean and even that i mean her husband was on the title with her like there were so many many things that were wrong with that deal like her husband you know i mean she's the wife she got the house but it hadn't even been probated yet i mean nothing i love to talk about that first house because i'm like if there's any mistake you could make i made a hundred percent of them except i found a really good honest woman and I was good and honest, and we helped each other out of a really tragic situation. But that's why when it got down to selling the house, there, you know, it hadn't even been probated. We didn't have any paper. This title company woman, she was just like, oh, my God, what have you guys done? Yeah. I mean, I love hearing these stories because these are like origin stories where everyone can relate to. Whereas, like, if I ask you about what you're doing now, you're doing thousands of deals and you have hundreds and thousands of students. Most people probably can't relate to that because they're not at that stage yet, but everyone can relate to where you were, where you started from nothing and you had to be creative with your first deal. Uh -huh. And my second deal was not a lot different from that one. The second deal, I found a homeowner that was, it was kind of the same thing, but I, I actually knew a little bit more only because the title company agent had literally chewed me out to the bones over the paperwork and stuff. So I found, I was door knocking again, and I found a second house. And this was a real super cute little two bed, two bath. And I thought, well, this looks like it would be a good deal. So I actually went and talked to the title company. I said, hey, I'd like to do this house. And it was the same kind of thing. The homeowner's going to move out. I'm going to move in. What do I need to have in writing? So the title company uh, helped me with the second one. But it was the same kind of thing. They moved out. I moved in. And then by the third one, I had discovered they're called hard money lenders. Are you familiar with the term hard money? They're people that I work for hard money lending company. So yes. Yeah. Okay. So they're hard money lenders and they lend money based on the deal, not based on your credit. So if you have a really good deal, they'll lend you money and rehab money and whatever. And they give you what's called a hard money loan, which is for people that don't know, it's an interest only loan. So by my third house, you know, I had made the money off the first one, money off the second one. And I found a hard money lender. Again, everything I'm finding in a newspaper. People have these ads, money to lend. So I'm calling people up. And I say, hey, I need some money. I'm going to do my third house. And But I also had some cash from the first two. So I had some money to put down. I got a hard money loan. And I moved in and fixed that one. And so that's why I started doing So by the third one, I was using hard money lenders. And that same title company from the first deal. Because I didn't know about title companies either. Do you happen to remember your hard money loan terms back then? Back then, it was 15% interest only, six months. And then you could get a six-month extension by paying like two or three extra points. Do you know how many points you had for origination fees? I'm going to say three. Seems like it was three points, 15% interest only, six months, with a six-month option for another three points. Uh, do you know what the max LTV was? I do not. So crazy. I don't remember back then. I don't remember that. I'd have to like seriously dig up some paperwork, but I don't really remember. I just remember by the time I borrowed the first amount of hard money, I had gotten a really good deal on the house and I was working with homeowners. I didn't even know. I mean, back then you could actually work with REO agents and you could work directly with the banks. I didn't even know that existed. I only knew knock on doors, find people in distress, help them help you, everybody wins. So I was in the business years before I started learning about the MLS and 
just all of the other things that come with it. So when I tell people, I'm like, listen, I'm a true, honest to God, rags to riches. I knew nothing other than investing sounded like fun and Ayla could be with me. And that was pretty much it. And I didn't have to work for anybody else, so I couldn't get fired. Exactly. And that's great. So it seems like in the past, it was harder to find deals. It was hard to operate, right? Because we didn't have internet back then. You didn't have GPS. You had to do everything manually. Now it's the opposite. Now the information is very accessible. But because of that, you probably have a lot more competition. There's like more people out there who are doing the same thing that you're trying to do. That is the thing. And I remember, I remember those little Garmin, I think they were called little Garmin GPS things. I remember when those came out and I was like, oh my gosh, a GPS in my car. I don't have to use the map because it's a massive map book with like hundreds of pages. And that in itself is a whole entire learning experience, trying to figure out how to map out a property off those stupid city maps. And I got that first GPS and, you know, I didn't have cell phones. I mean, we had pagers. That's why I tell people now, I'm like, listen, with all the things that you have available and you tell me you can't find a deal, I just want to smack you upside the head because I had none of those things and I was able to build a, you know, an empire out of it. So now I think, though, the thing that happens, Sean, is that investors, too many people try to sell these programs, automate everything, never leave your house, make money while you're sleeping, close deals in your pajamas. And they try to make it so super easy and everyone buys into the easy, easy working into my PJs at home. But the reality is you still need to go out. You still need to talk to homeowners. You know, you still need to, if you're going to rehab a house, you have to know something about rehabbing or, or hire people and know what they're doing. And it is not a do it in your pajamas in the middle of the night deal. It's not like that. So I think the downside to technology is there's too many people that are actually marketers and not actual investors trying to sell stuff to people that makes it sound super easy and then they get it and it doesn't work. Then they think, oh, investing doesn't work. But investing does work. They're just, they're not being given the right opportunity. Yep. And what would you recommend for people who are trying to get into the business? What are some of the things that they should be doing today? Well, they should be listening to my podcast and yours. So my podcast is called The Most Wonderful Real Estate Podcast Ever. And basically, I do a 30-minute podcast, and I teach every single little aspect of real estate investing. And people need to find like an actual solid mentor. So, And I always say me because I am the best that there is. But people need to find somebody that's a really solid person that actually does do deals, actively does deals, knows how to do deals, who can kind of help them. They need to join their local RIA group or a local meetup, but they need to learn from other people who, you know, or not learn, but, you know, get the advice, get the training and take that and then, you know, move forward on their own. So I always tell people like, listen, if you want a really good trainer who's honest and will teach you everything, you need to be investing in my programs, following what I'm doing, because I have students all over in Australia and Canada and all over the United States and everyone that will follow the system makes money. But the key is, they have to follow the system. They can't just read the program and go, oh, that was great. You know, let me just close my computer and I'm good for the day. And, you know, you don't take action, nothing happens. So I think people should be mostly wary of anything that sounds too easy. 
because it's something that's difficult, but it's not as easy as just sitting in your pajamas in the middle of the night and doing deals. You can make offers that way. You can get all kinds of things going on. But if you ever want to like really build yourself a business, you need to learn like what a real estate agent does, why you need them on your team. You need to learn about having contractors on your team. You need to learn about what title companies, what they do and what their job is. You need to learn some basic skills on what it takes to do stuff. You know, you need to learn a little bit about the legal side of the foreclosures, like understanding what a foreclosure is and the process and the time frame, and understand the mindset of the homeowner and just like putting all the pieces together for this puzzle and then going forward with it. Yeah. And it's not just about learning as well, but at some point you actually have to do it to get the actual experience. It's kind of like learning how to do all these great exercises, but then at the end of the day, you actually do have to go to the gym to work out. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you can sit there all day long on YouTube and go, oh, look at that. I watched 12 yoga classes today. It was great. But did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> can you actually get in one of those poses without falling over on your head? And so people, and you know, I got to tell you, a downside for people is a lot of people feel like they have to learn everything to be able to go forward. And that really holds people back. They're like, well, I'm still learning. I don't feel like I have enough education yet. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm taking another boot camp, another workshop, another coaching program. I bought something else. I didn't start my LLC yet. And I see so many people that are sort of like paralyzed by, not thinking they have enough knowledge and they keep learning, which is fine, but they need to just do it because you know, the best way to learn anything is like, so you said, you know, the best way to learn anything is to do it. You can watch people do exercises all day, but unless you go to the gym or pick up the weights and do them, you're not learning anything. So people get stuck really over-educating themselves because they don't know what they should be doing first. So they, they get, you know, tons of programs, tons of workshops, tons of seminars, tons of webinars, tons and tons and tons. Then they have so much information. They don't know how to process it out into a step-by-step. -step. Like do this, then, you know, the second week do this, and the third week do that. And that's one of the things I do is I teach people how to do stuff in a weekly. Do this in the first week, do this in the second week, then do this and this and this. And if you keep doing it week by week, you will loop back around and you'll have like a ball that'll be rolling. Yeah. So I think over-educating is a downside because people are getting too much information from too many different people and then they don't know how to put it together. So it's like, stop reinventing the wheel. Just follow somebody else's wheel. That's like my wheel has been working for 30 years. So, you know, you just follow someone else's wheel that's been working. Yeah. All right, Duan, this has been an amazing conversation. I really love your story about how you bought your first home. Do you have any last tips for listeners before we end our show today? Well, you know, the main thing, Sean, I just want people to know that real estate investing is, it's such a rewarding business. You know, you're, you're helping people out that are in distress, creating a win-win situation for them. They get a fresh start. You are creating an amazing income and lifestyle for yourself. And I think people just need to take action. People are held back by fear, fear of the unknown, you know, what if they make a mistake? And it's like, listen, if there's any mistakes to be made, I made all of them. And I still lived to tell the story another day. So I think people need to just jump in and take action and, and stop letting the fear hold them back. 
and just do it. Like literally just do it because you'll never regret a day of working for yourself. Yeah. I know we didn't really get a chance to talk about that, but can you briefly go over some like one time that maybe you made a mistake and the lesson you learned from it? Okay. The first one that popped in my head, this is back when I was still rehabbing. So I had only rehabbed a couple of houses. So I went and looked at one, a house one day and as I was in the house there were all these bugs flying around. So I just remember thinking like, man, this house has like bugs everywhere. I didn't have to, you know, have someone come and get rid of all these bugs. So I bought this house. But it turns out there were termites and the house and all the trusses and the roof and all the wood, it was destroyed by the termites. And that was just one of those things. Like I didn't know that they were termites. I didn't know that I could get the house. You know, I should have had the house inspected before I bought it. That's when I learned never buy a house without an inspection. And so this is the house I was going to make like 30 or $35,000 on fixing it up. But because of all the termite damage and having to replace literally every beam in the house, I made $2,800. That's how much rehab it went over. $30,000 over. That money should have been in my pocket. And that was a big, I mean, thank God it made something. But I was like, okay, never buy a house without getting inspected head to toe. And I don't mind buying it, you know, in the damage it was in. I should have just paid way less for it. So I learned the value of having a good home inspector. Yep. Good thing that at least you didn't lose money. And as you progress in your career, you learn some new things every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that was an embarrassing story. It's like, oh man, I only made 2,800 bucks. And by this time I'm speaking and people are like, hey, tell us about that house with the termites. And I was like, seriously, I hate to tell that story. But, you know, I didn't know what they were. And I just thought like you just bond the house and get rid of the bugs. It'll be fine. So again, in my learning process, I realized a home inspection, you know, they're like 350 bucks, but they can be a lifesaver. If I had a home inspector, I would have passed on the house or paid way less for it. But luckily, like I said, I made 20, 2800 bucks, but it cost me 30,000 extra dollars of work. And if I didn't have that extra money, I would have been screwed on that deal. You know? It's true. Yeah. I mean, at least you got out pretty okay. Yeah, well, my pride was wounded pretty bad, but. There you go. <laughs> All right, Dawn. Well, thank you so much for your time today. How can people get in contact with you? Well, they can just go to my website. It's dwonderful.com. So D-W-A-N. D-E-R-F-U-L, like wonderful, but dwonderful, dwonderful.com. And I actually, if they'll opt in, I have a free real estate investing program. That's the top seven real estate strategies for today's new market. They can get a free program and I won't pound their email to death and they can read through and look at my strategies and my advice. And if they like it, they can pop over to the most wonderful real estate podcast ever and stay checked in with me. Awesome. Well, Dwan, Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Sean. I loved it. Thank you. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. You need to learn the jobs before you hire them out. That way you can tell if someone's giving you a bad estimate of what something costs or how long a project will take. Generating leads in the 21st century is a lot easier than it was back in the 80s and 90s. We have the internet to help us look up tax records and we have GPS systems to help us find our desired location. So we shouldn't have any excuses on why we can't find deals. Send out your marketing and knock on doors. Have a set schedule for your activities and your hard work will eventually pay off. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei.
And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.